Hello, and thank you for listening to episode 59 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave, and this is the return of our interview shows. And what a fantastic one it is, too, because I'm joined by writer, producer, director, and trustee of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Please sit back, relax, and get comfortable as I spend 60 minutes with John Walsh. John, first of all, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Uh, This is another interview show that I've really been looking forward to, so thank you so much for your time. Not at all, Dave. It's um, it's always great to take time and I'm delighted to speak to you tonight. Well, film has been such a huge part of your life uh, and continues to be so. I'm fascinated to to find out the genesis of this. Was there one particular movie where this all began or has it been a a slow build with you? Um, Well, when my parents used to take me to the cinema in the sort of uh, mid to late 70s and early 80s, Ray Harryhausen films were the types of films I would prefer to see. So rather than seeing Disney films with cats and dogs singing, playing the piano, which I would, of course, go to, I much preferred seeing Arabian adventures and monsters and sailors and and, and fights with skeletons. Um, so that was very much the, uh, the grounding for me going to the cinema. And, of course, Superman the movie, Star Wars and all those wonderful films. But when I went home and asked my parents for a Super 8 camera um sort of a a film camera that runs eight millimeter film it was um stop motion animations that got me sort of into that process so aping what i'd seen in in ray harryhausen films but in a very basic sort of way using my toys and using some um some putty or some plasticine (laughs) how old were you when you first got your camera um i think i was around um eight or nine when i got the camera and I'd worked with it then for a good few years whilst I was in secondary school. And it was when I was 15, I was BBC Young Filmmaker of the Year as part of the Saturday Picture Show that was on the BBC. It picked up the competition from Screen Test, which had been uh, cancelled, I think, a year or two earlier. Um, so that kind of really fired me up to continue with the filmmaking, sort of legitimise you know, my little tiny projects I was making. But it wasn't until I applied to the London Film School Um, when I was doing my A-levels, that things really changed for me. Um, The London Film School at the time was only one of two places in the entire country where you could learn filmmaking. The other was the National Film and Television School in Beaconsfield. And at the age of um, just about 18, I was accepted to the London Film School, which is traditionally a post-grad course or a Mm -hmm. course where people go when they've had some industry experience. So when I joined and I was 18... Um, all of my other classmates were sort of mid to late 20s and I didn't know anyone (laughs) mid to late 20s I had school friends who were my age and people at uh, college where I did my A-levels who were my age and then of course there's a big gap and then there's people your parents age and older and so on so I didn't really hang around with 25 year olds (laughs) and at the London Film School it was, although it was a school it was quite unlike anything I'd experienced before you could sit in class smoking and drink coffee and so on, um, which which I kind of observed from the sidelines. So quite a strange experience. After two years of the London Film School, which was like the Marines of film schools in many ways, <laughs> um, you were kind of battered and bruised, but well able to take charge of productions and do things at every level, from sound recording to editing on a 16mm steam deck to shooting your own stuff and getting out there and getting down with the contributors. So it really was the, the formative two years I needed before I could start sort of directing properly. And so I was um, quite a tender 20-year-old director when I was working professionally. And, and I had a quite young look about me anyway, so I kind of looked like I was 15 or 16. So <laughs> it, was, it was tricky, to say the least. Yeah, that must have been so daunting for you to begin with, thrown into uh, that environment, like you say, with everybody's old, you know, that much older than you too. Uh, and of course, one of the short films that you made that uh, I was privileged to watch at uh, the Starburst Film Festival just the other month, uh, which was brilliant, by the way. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And the story, the incredible story of how you came to put this short film together is is absolutely fascinating. So please, if you'd like to tell the listeners of, of how this project came together and, of course, uh, what the short film is about. Well, the London Film School, um, you make six films over the two years um, at the school. And in the uh, first year, you make a, a black and white 
film in the first term with no sound. Then in the second term you make a colour film with what's called post-sync sound, where you pop the sound on afterwards, and that's a one-minute film. Then the third term comes along, and the third term is the documentary term, and that's quite a big step up. You're given a 16mm camera, you can record location sound on what's called a Nagra tape recorder. You have to go out, find a documentary subject, create your film, show it to everyone at the school at the end of term screenings, and the staff would judge your film as if you had made it in a professional environment. So it was... um, I mean, this preceded things like, uh, this is well before the X Factor and these sorts of shows, mm-hmm. where the judging was was really quite harsh, and I was terrified. The end-of-term screenings <laughs> would always terrify me. Um, so I thought, gosh, what am I going to do? What kind of subject am, am I going to make? All of my decisions were, were, were tempered by the fact that when I joined the London Film School, the Inner, inner London Education Authority didn't recognise the course because it was so expensive. So I was, yeah. So I am. It was. This was in the late eighties, and it was twenty thousand pounds for the course. So that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. Yeah. And then it was considered to be like you know king's ransom. It was certainly worth the money. There's no question that you weren't getting value because it was sixteen millimeter and thirty-five millimeter film. So the decisions I made were tempered by the fact that thirteen educational trusts, charities, and bursary places gave me the uh, the funding I needed for my two years and my films were shown to those organisations so other film students were off making films maybe that were quite near the knuckle and might have had profanity and, and so on in them I was always thinking about gosh what will I show the people who have effectively sponsored me through film school <laughs> um, so it kind of in a way was a good thing because it limited my opportunities and focused me I should say rather than limited my opportunities focused me on making a professional and, uh, and, and and much more agreeable showreel. So I thought I would love to make a documentary on Ray Harryhausen. I knew he lived in London, didn't know where, and being I was a great admirer of his films, I'd heard and I'd read in Starburst magazine that he kept many of the models, many of the creatures that appeared in his in his features. So whether it was the Medusa from Clash of the Titans or... Um, the skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts I thought this would be a fascinating 15 minutes topic so Mm. I convinced the people in my film units that this would be a possibility I got out (laughs) a uh, British Telecom directory or BT directory looked up um, an H for Harryhausen he was the only R Harryhausen in fact he was the only Harryhausen (laughs) in the London telephone directory and there was his telephone number and his address at 2 Ilchester Place London uh, w1 um in holland park so i thought gosh i'll have to um ask my parents if i can use the phone this was back in the days when clearly no mobile phones and no access <laughs> to the telephone without asking parents first who are you ringing if it's someone from school <laughs> you can speak to them the next day you don't need to ring them at whatever it is 10 p a minute so asked my parents rang the number and ray harryhausen picked up the phone himself Oh, that's fantastic. And of course, to me, a South London film student, and I used to speak with quite a South London accent back in those days and a much higher pitched voice. Um, when he picked up the phone, it sounded like Charlton Heston on the other end. <laughs> with something like, a, oh, hello there. And uh, I was like, gosh, oh, hello. Can I speak to Ray Harryhausen? This is Ray Harryhausen. How can I help you? And I was like, oh, my goodness, what do I say? I was quite tongue tied. <laughs> so I eventually pitched it to him. He said, come to my house. We can talk. And... And the rest kind of changed my professional working career because the short film I went on to make about Ray Harryhausen um, became, as it were, a calling card. When I left film school, I could say, look, this is what I can do. And I went on to have quite a sort of a long and, uh, I guess, relatively successful career as a a filmmaker in documentaries and and in feature films. And I think what really helped, the film was 16mm, what really kind of lifted it and gave it production value. I, I quite cheekily asked the leading voice artist of the time, former Mr. Doctor Who Tom Baker, if he wouldn't mind doing a voiceover gratis <laughs> for free. And of course, his agent was like, um, I mean, to be fair, the agent was very sweet about it, but she said, look, it's his decision. Um, why would he want to do this? And I know you're a film student and so on, but you know, 
Tom Baker has a has a place in the in the world of voice and theatre and television. Why should he do this? And I said, well, did you know? He got the part of Doctor Who when the producer Barry Letts was looking for a replacement for John Pertwee, who was leaving the role. Had spoken to many actors, some of them quite well known, like Ron Moody, and was at a, a loss to find just the right person. And Ron Moody had turned the role down. And um, one wet Wednesday afternoon, as I understand it, he was in Leicester Square. He went in, saw The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, where Tom Baker plays Prince Kura, the villain of the piece in that wonderful film from 1974. Went back to the BBC, picked up the phone to his agent, rang, left a message with the agent to say, this is Barry Letts, I want to see Tom Baker, it's for Doctor Who, and it's for the role of the Doctor. The agent then rang where Tom was staying um, in a and b &B, left a message for him because she knew he wouldn't get it until he comes home from work. He'd been working basically as a, um, well, as what they used to call a navvy on a building site, doing sort of odd jobs, mixing the cement and so on. He was working very hard in a in a very lowly position on a building site. So it changed Tom Baker's life. He became Doctor Who and it changed television and Doctor Who for everyone who watches it is synonymous with Tom Baker. And I got Sam cheekily to to get a voice artist (laughs) in Tom Baker to voice the film. In 1933, a young boy went to the cinema and found a lifetime occupation. King Kong fired his imagination, his curiosity and his ambition. Half a century later, Ray Harryhausen reflects back on his own creations. Sinbad, Gulliver, the beast from 20,000 fathoms, Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans, and the host of fabulous creatures from the imagination and skill of the master of animation. And you heard it, Dave, didn't you, at the uh, at Starburst? It, it kind of works, doesn't it? Oh, it most definitely works. And I love the fact that you just you just went straight for the top for, for one of the best voices in the business and had had the angle as well to uh, to try and get him to agree to do it with the connection with Ray Harryhausen as well. Uh, that forward thinking and and just sheer bravado <laughs> just has to be applauded. I think it's brilliant. No, thanks. Well, I, it, it was when I look back at it, I think, gosh, you know, I had some brass balls to do that. Um, <laughs> but there was a certain naivety about it. The fact that I was 18, everyone treated me as like their younger brother at the film school. So I could kind of get away with stuff and everyone used to look out for me and look after me. And I kind of thought, well, what the hell? I will. Looking back, I realised that actually I was putting a package together. It's what I did in my later career where I would speak to a channel. I'd look at what they were output was I'd see where they were missing those conversations if you like with the public and I would pitch ideas that were sometimes controversial near the knuckle and get very decent budgets very decent slots in schedules so I didn't realize it for a long time after making that Harryhausen documentary but it was the first time I was bringing value to a production so that um, a commissioner might say yes and it worked very well with Tom it became a bit of a calling card, but I never imagined I'd end up being a trustee of the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. That was um, that was never never on my radar. I hadn't even heard of the foundation at this point, so that was it. Is yeah. it, it's such an incredible journey though that you've been on to where we are now? You know, and this is just part way through the journey, of course. And with the documentary, did you actually get to meet Tom Baker then, or was it all done via phone calls and letters and so on at that time, or did you actually get to meet the guy? No, he came to the film school, so where we were doing the recording, so he had to come there, see the rough cut. The rough cut had my voice in the places where the narration was going to be. He watched it on the steam deck, because everything was shot on 16mm. We brought him down to the basement where the sound department was for the film school, put him in a sound booth, and we recorded the the narration and he recorded basically word for word for for what I'd written and I remember people saying to me now when he comes don't mention Doctor Who as tempting as it would be (laughs) don't mention I was like no no of course I won't mention Doctor Who I'm not a fool and the the perception was that he'd not only left the role of Doctor Who by this time because he'd left in 1981 and Peter Davison had taken over and it had been very successful with Peter Davison so he not only left the role but was trying to distance himself from it and the perception was that if you talked about it you might upset him 
He's here doing you a favour. Don't upset him. I'm a massive <laughs> Doctor Who fan. I love Doctor Who. Um, it's it's a big thing with me, Doctor Who. I've worked with many of the, the Doctors in, in different roles, whether it's been for drama or narration and so on. Uh, David Tennant did something for me recently. And I kind of felt, yes, it's quite tempting. How am I going to not mention <laughs> about my favourite TV show? And I didn't. And interestingly, when Tom Baker came, he was a very gracious man. And he mentioned Doctor Who. He mentioned the fact that he was working on the building site and so on, etc. The story that we just talked about. And I thought, great, he's, he's, he's slightly opened the door here so we can talk about it. And we did. You know, I asked him about Ray Harryhausen working with Ray, the special effects how it compared to what he later did with Doctor Who and it was Tom Baker who reminded me in fact that Ray Harryhausen had worked with a previous Doctor, Patrick Troughton on Jason and the Argonauts and again in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger so Ray Harryhausen's pool of, of quality actors from film and television from, from Britain you know, included a previous Doctor Who as well and a rather good one, Patrick Troughton so oh, yes. he, he was quite open to talking about it. He liked the film that we made. He saw it as quite a tribute to Ray Harryhausen. And he was, he was happy to, uh, to take the time. And I'm, I'm very grateful to Tom Baker for um, helping me put that film um, out there and giving it a, a bit of a status because it was my first documentary. So I was very anxious and only looked at it recently when we had it scanned in high definition and restored with some new sound. Um, and I thought well, actually it's alright for an 18 year old at the time I used to be so self-conscious of showing it to people um, mm -hmm. but there you go you know, time mellows us all <laughs> it is, I can highly recommend it to everybody listening, it is really really good and I've, got, I've got to ask, what was it like you, you stood at the door of Ray Harryhausen's house for the very first time what did you feel like? What you know? What happened? Did you know? You knock on the door, or ring the bell, and and then what happened? You must have been nervous, surely. I was nervous I'd be late. I was nervous that I couldn't find the house. I was nervous <laughs> that he might say no. I was nervous that I might say the wrong thing. So I think at that age, everything I was motivated by a series of anxieties. I mean, I didn't have any kind of issues, but I was just going through a series of checklists don't be late you know don't speak over him and so on so it, it I couldn't say which thing I was more nervous of you kind of tick them off once you're not late and you can find the place you can you can file those anxieties away um I had so many things I wanted to ask the obvious fanboy questions which is your favorite film which is your favorite monster um which is the one that you think is is, is least cherished and which is the one you'd most like to bring back and so we kind of got through a lot of those in the first meeting. Um, I recognised from reading and, and talking to Ray Harryhausen in those first meetings, he was somewhat reluctant to give too many of the secrets away. And so we had to make that decision fairly early on as to how far we were going to go with the documentary, what questions I could ask. But first things first, he invited me into his sumptuous Holland Park home, which... Um, if anyone knows Ilchester Place in London, it's just literally around the corner from where now Robbie Williams and Michael Winner's house was. And so quite a well-to-do house. And on the top floor where his office was, he had all of the creatures in different cabinets, or most of the creatures, some were in the garage, all places. And uh, his wife, Diana, got me some banana cake, which was Ray's favourite cake, which was very much like a ginger loaf, but it's a banana mm -hmm. one. And I remember having that with some tea. And uh, there was a young girl who was popping out, and it was Ray's daughter, Vanessa. And Diana said, oh, uh, Vanessa, say hello to John. Um, and she just popped into the lounge because she said, John's come. He's a film student. He's come to see your father. Oh, hi, John. Bye, John. And out she went. <laughs> and now, of course, I'm, I'm a trustee at the foundation with Vanessa, and we work very closely together. She has no memory of that because she said that, people would come to the house all the time other filmmakers uh, Bernard Herrmann would regularly be at the house of course the very famous film composer um, and even in in recent years you know since Ray stopped filmmaking the great and good of Hollywood would would often be at his door so for me going in I was quite focused I wanted to make sure that I'd, I'd get Ray's agreement to um, appear in the film to be interviewed to allow me to have access to some of the creatures and to see if he'd be prepared to come to different locations because I didn't want this to be a talking heads film. I, I would be roasted alive if I just 
sat him down in a chair and got him chatting and then delivered that as my end of term film I would never have survived the end of term screenings had I done that it had to feel like a film that had legs was going places was doing things um, had different locations had layers to it even though I was 18 the uh, the film school takes no prisoners your film would be judged as if it was a piece of professional work so all of that's in the back of your mind as well um, and we just hit it off Ray realised I wasn't just somebody wanting to make a film I was a fanboy and I was interested in the creatures how some of the films were received better than others I knew about the history of um, the Valley of Guanji say and First Men in the Moon how those films weren't received at the time as well as perhaps some of the others um, I recognised some of the anxieties around Clash of the Titans when it was released by far Ray's most successful commercial film but also one of the most heavily criticised at the time of his films. So, and what happened next? Why there wasn't another film, him and Charles Schneer, the changes in stop motion uh, animation and photochemical special effects. I was aware of all of those issues and stories. And this is that time when there was no internet. So I was, I was picking up from Starburst and Starlog magazines, reading some Cinefax when I could guess mm -hmm. it, and then just sort of filling in some of the blanks between the inconsistencies in um, some of the interviews. What's not said is often more revealing than what is said. And looking where I could in, in um, popular press, radio times, TV times, reading reviews. So it really was quite difficult to find. If you were writing a book about Ray Harryhausen, you'd have a hard job finding enough material. So you'd need the subject himself. And there I had it. So that was the first major hurdle and and, uh, and as I say the film is um, is available now through the foundation when people come and do talks but you can play a clip Dave as part of 60 Minutes With because I've given you access haven't I to, um, to that and, and my other film projects you have very kindly thank you John and I'm sure the listeners are absolutely going to love listening to it and it will i can i can say quite honestly it will make you want to watch it after listening even to a few little clips from it i innocently walked one saturday afternoon into the grandma's chinese cinema to see a film called king kong and when i came out i haven't been the same since so you can see what an influence a a, a film can be on a young mind i was 13 at the time and i'd never seen a film like that before and uh, I, I knew it wasn't a man in a suit, particularly the gorilla and the dinosaurs. And uh, the picture was so, so overwhelming that I, I felt I had to find out how it was done. And it took many years later, of course, to uh, discover because there was very little information about stop motion photography. And finally, I met somebody who worked in the studio, at the RKO studio. And they uh, told me about stop-motion photography. And then, of course, I delved into books and I found out how you could make these animals move through one frame at a time, and uh, similar to the cartoon. And it um, gradually developed from a hobby into a profession. <laughs> it's because it was this. I mean, this was like the launch pad um, for your successful career as a writer, director, and producer. Um, twice BAFTA nominated too yes that's right I mean it's um, it's interesting the um, when I first started in television the great thing about not being successful is that people will say no and <laughs> when it's, it's actually quite a good thing now later on it's, it's difficult because now when I meet people in television they will never say no to me that doesn't mean they always say yes but they'll, they'll be vague about it. They won't want to appear negative about your ideas. They want to keep that relationship going in case there's something later on. But rather than a nice crisp no, and then you know where you are, you get this vague um, impression that they want to keep you here out of politeness. They can't say no. You've had a few nominations for a few awards. You've won a few and you've nominated for a few. You're the kind of person we want here, but not with this idea. But nobody can quite bring themselves to give you a nice crisp no. And when I first started, I thought, oh, this is terrible, people saying no to everything. Actually, it's a blessing because once you've been through the obvious and usual suspects for an idea, if it's no, you park it, you work on something else. 
these days it's much harder to um, to get people to admit they don't like it. Um, and it's, um, as I say, I've, I've spoken to other people who've, who've done well in television as well, and they all suffer the same um, sort of problem because you're always pitching. So I'm always the eager seller and the commissioner <laughs> is always the suspicious buyer. So you're trying as much as possible to try and neutralise both those positions. So when I do speak to a commissioner, I try my best not to sell the idea because if you're in front of them, they've already read the proposal and they want to hear more. So I, I try my best not to oversell things. Um, but certainly this was the, the starting point for me with the Ray Harryhausen movements into life. Lots of films and documentaries, a few dramas, um, a couple of cinema releases, a feature film documentary about politics, of all things. Um, <laughs> and one of my, my first feature film, Monarch, which managed to get a re-release on the back of on the back of Tory Boy the movie being successful, ironically. So I've had a quite a mixed bag career, but one that's led me to quite a lot of success in this sort of the award side of things. And a, uh, a quite a nice niche to have, which is giving uh, a voice to the vulnerable, but mostly in prime time, which is quite difficult when you think about how our programmes are scheduled and what populates current schedules. To yeah. find a place for a programme that can get repeated at different times and different slots over a period of years is quite unusual. So as an, as a, an indie, because I'm an indie company, I'm, I'm regarded less as an individual filmmaker but more as a company that provides content. Um, we've got a, an interesting back catalogue that's quite active. Most of the very big indies don't have what's called an active back catalogue. If you think of a, a very successful reality programme if it's showing what's happened in the house last night, that show won't be repeated much after the, the following day. So you couldn't go to the people who make Big Brother and have Series 5 repeated, for example. It's not something that viewers really want to see. So so much of television has become sort of wallpaper. It was important mm -hmm. for me to find a different place for myself so that I could do something that was worthwhile, do something I felt made a difference, but also something that had... Um, a real life to it and real legs to it so I've had a repeat of a film I'd made that David Tennant narrated called My Life Karate Kids it's been shown 15 times now on the BBC over the last oh. five years which is a which is a record for me to have any single film repeated that many times 15 times it was about how it was about disability hate crime amongst children effectively and it was um, it kind of broke new ground when it was on so anytime we can have a a new conversation or a program that challenges perceptions because often I'm on whether it's breakfast news or, or radio for today's program talking about what I've done then I know I've positioned my work in the right place and it's had it has something new to say perhaps about an old subject whether it's homelessness disability hate crime um, childhood grief and so on what's what's your most enjoyable part then of the whole filmmaking process because you know, you're involved right from the idea stage right through post-production as well. What do you find the most enjoyable about it? I think all of it. I mean, it's... it's um, when I... I never over-promise to commissioners. I always say this is what I, I hope to get. But as we start to film and the, the, the subject grows organically, I'm, I'm kind of... You get a warm feeling inside that, oh, wow, this is going to be something more than we've all expected and it's making sure that the environment when you're filming is free enough so that the contributors the people you're filming um, naturally and organically grow so in, in the sense that if you were going in you were determined from the get-go to make a certain film and you were going to make sure your form of questioning and the type of cinema verite that you're you're capturing is is already predetermined then you're not going to come out particularly well satisfied whereas mm -hmm. i like the brief to be loose enough so that the surprises can occur and that's when the film feels organic the more organic it can be then the um the more successful it will be when when i i stood for parliament in 2010 and i was a lifelong labor voter i'd voted for labor forever in a day um and I was turned off the Labour Party after making a documentary with Gordon Brown in number 10. It went very badly. Um, the documentary's on my website. There's, n there's nothing too controversial in it, but it was, it was made for the government, and I was asked by the government to make this film. 
called a Prime Minister's Global Fellowship, sort of a gap year challenge thing. Um, I switched. I decided to stand as a as a conservative of all types. Um, I made a film about it that was in cinemas, but that was not the intention. Um, I'd been offered some money to deliver a 10-minute news piece to news who said that they would take this from me to show me as a candidate switching from Labour to Conservative. When I went to Middlesbrough, I found there was a very different story there that organically grew in front of me. And because I was used to allowing sort of a certain amount of space for these stories to grow, it kind of completely enveloped the film that we were planning to make and became something else entirely. Came back to London with 72 hours of incredible footage, cut it together. It ended up being a feature documentary for the cinema, Tory Boy, the movie. Up until a few months ago, I was a Labour supporter. So what would you say to people like myself who, who've kind of been Labour voters all their life, came from Labour background with Labour parents and so on, but now deciding to press the, the blue button? Really quite unique, aren't you? The Queen has kindly agreed to the dissolution of Parliament. You're voting for the fresh start our country so badly needs. So I'm now the candidate for Middlesbrough. Ooh. I've just picked up bits and pieces from watching TV. So it's going to be leaflets knocking on doors and just generally making a, a bit of a noise up in Middlesbrough, I think. And this is a Labour stronghold, Stuart Bell. Big craggy faced old geezer. Um, he's got a face like a cookie. Do you know who this is? Would you be surprised to know he's been the MP around here for the first years? No, I've never seen him. I've never seen Stuart Bell. He's not doing a job that he's being paid for. I think if people did realise that, then they'd probably refuse to pay for it. The mothballing of the Corus steel plant brings to an end 170 years of steel making in the region. Well, Stuart Bell's just a waste of space. Virtually in semi retirement. What about um, your local MP, Stuart Bell? What about him? I've heard he's living in Paris. He ought to be ashamed of himself. I'm coming for you, Bell. Sir Stuart, it's John Walsh here. I'm outside your house, so if you'd like to come out and say hello. Do you, Bill, you owe people an apology? Who's this gentleman? Oh, he's with me? It's OK, okay. He's with me. Yeah, yeah. As long as there's an election, his leaflets come through your letterbox, but you never seem to see him any other time. That's Bell. I know it's Bell. You wouldn't consider voting Conservative? Right? I'd rather jazz and vote Conservative. So you wonder how much of this is just banging your head against a brick wall? I want a leaflet to go out, and if it doesn't go out, I'm pulling it out of the campaign. Maybe we should just pull out of the campaign. Let's get Stuart Bell in prison by Christmas! Don't, 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 don't treat me the way you treat people in Middlesbrough. Are you worried that there might be more people like myself? No, because you're a rarity. Yeah, with respect, you're a rarity. And <laughs> it was had various award nominations and so on, and was released in 2011, so a year after the 2010 election. It was released nationally. I came back again then in 2015, just ahead of the last general election. So that film entirely grew organically out of discoveries that were made and where one step led us to the next and so on. So I think that sort of thing is very exciting. And I start to edit it in my head. I can imagine the sequence as it comes together. So it, it really sort of, I really enjoy the shoot. Um, the edit is a relief when you put it together and it's either better than you thought or at least as good as you thought and then it's a series of I guess anxieties again hoping that other people see what you see in it and that commissioners like it and then that viewers like it and then if it's going through what's called the awards corridor which is a whole another thing that, <laughs> that it kind of works um, politically of course going through the awards corridor can be a um can be a kind of a negative thing as well if your program has been selected above other people's programs in certain departments that has burnt bridges for me in the past so yeah. it's not always a good thing um, to come away with the silverware but I would sooner have the silverware than, than not <laughs> With all of this going on how did you get involved with the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation then? Well Ray had his 90th birthday a few years ago and I always kept in touch with Ray. I'd send him cards, trans what are called transmission cards, little postcards for my stuff when it's on TV. He dropped me a note back saying, this is great, or I see you've used some animation and so on. And when I could, I would I would come to the house and say hello. 
So we would swap correspondence. And it just occurred to me around the time of the 90th, um, Ray hadn't recorded commentaries for most of the films that he'd made, except for, I think, one or two. Jason and the Argonauts, I think, and The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad had commentaries, proper commentaries recorded. And I said to him, you know, why haven't you done them for Golden Voyage of Sinbad, Eye of the Tiger, First Man in the Moon, Clash of the Titans? And yeah. he said to me, well, you know, nobody asked me to. And I said, okay, well... <laughs> that's crazy why would they not and he said well I, th- I think they think I have nothing new to say or and I don't know if I'd remember what to say and I was like oh it seemed vague and I thought well, maybe if you didn't enjoy the last ones perhaps um, perhaps there's another way of doing these and he said well you know he went to a recording studio to do them and that's quite a sterile place to do a, a commentary record because what effectively you're doing when directors are looking at previous films Although Ray never directed these films, effectively he was the filmmaker because he came up with the ideas and put everything together, even selecting the the shooting directors. Um, it's a it's a form of regression therapy. So, if you were to put, for example, Stanley Kubrick in front of a copy of Two Thousand and One, if Mr. Kubrick was still here, most of it would be recollections from the past. And in regression therapy, there's images, sounds and smells that psychologists use to try and return you to that to that moment. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, the best place to do these commentaries, Ray, would be in your lounge, in your house. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. I said, listen, you know, I, I recognize he had the foundation at this stage and he was he had it set up to kind of preserve, physically preserve the creatures because some of them were deteriorating. I said, look. It seems crazy if you want to do it, and I've got the resources because you know I work with high-quality sound recordists and, and documentary filmmakers and cameramen and so on. We could do it in the house if you want to. Um, so he was anxious that he wouldn't have anything to say or he'd be exposed as having forgot lots of stuff. Um, and I thought, well, well, we don't have to use it. I'll give them to the foundation when we've done them anyway. So it's not as if they have to be seen or have to be heard. So he agreed. We did Clash of the Titans, and it was a great success. He remembered tons and lots of stuff that hadn't appeared in any of the, the publications or books. And Rob Ead, who's my uh, regular sound recordist, and Simon Harvey, who's a regular photographer and cameraman that I use, um, were great because they're very quiet people. They're very technical people. And Ray loves technical people and loves chatting about new technologies. And... Um, it was marvellous so we just then decided you know what we're going to work our way through every film and in the case of Golden Voyager Sinbad uh, Caroline Monroe who is a trustee of the foundation she sat in with Ray she played uh, Mariana in the film and of course was a Bond girl as well Uh, Martine Beswick sat in for one million years BC and recorded a commentary with Ray Um, Randy Cook who's a special effects artist he did First Men in the Moon with Ray. Colin Arthur, a makeup artist from Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, did that film. Um, Ray had lots of contemporary filmmakers who were interested in his work. And I knew that uh, John Landis was coming over to London. This was around uh, 2012. And we got in touch and said, look, we're doing these commentaries with Ray. I know you regularly come to his house. Would you like to, to sit and do one with him? And if so, what film? And he was like, sure, I'd love to, I'd love to. Um, I'd like to do Mighty Joe Young. I love that movie. It got me into gorillas. I love gorilla movies. It's got to be Mighty Joe Young. I was like, great, well, we haven't done that yet. So I said it to Ray. Ray was thrilled. And it's really one of my favourite commentaries because to hear John Landis and Ray chatting about filmmaking of the past and sitting in the commissary for RKO when he was making Mighty Joe and who was around at the time. Of course, Howard Hughes owned the studio at the time, quite famously. And of course, John Landis has some marvellous recollections of being around the studio system in the 70s and 80s. Um, John Landis was in London filming American Werewolf in London in 1981 when Ray was filming Clash of the Titans. And John went to visit Ray in um, Pinewood and saw him animating the flying Pegasus horse sequences. So that was really marvellous. So we recorded all these commentaries. Um, Ray was in pretty good condition, really, for a man who was in his now early 90s. Yeah. He had had mobility. 
um, sometimes um, walked with a stick, but mostly didn't. He had um, exceptional recall of, of the films. He said he doesn't know if you'd remember anything. He remembered loads, absolutely <laughs> tons and tons of stuff. Uh, as I say, stuff that had never even been published before. Um, so he said to me, look, I'm not going to be around forever. I, I'm looking for people to be involved in the foundation. This is clearly above and beyond what you've done with the commentaries. And uh, would you consider being a trustee? And I didn't even think one second that I was, yes, of course, absolutely. I wasn't angling for that. But if you think that I would be best suited. So the trustees of the foundation, myself, Ray's daughter, Vanessa, um, Caroline Monroe and the family solicitor Simon McIntosh from Turk and Connell um, between the four of us we we run things we look after the legacy um, the collection which is 50,000 items strong and um, we do talks we give lectures we tour with some of the pieces um, we get involved with re-releases of Ray's films One Million Years BC comes out on the 24th of October on Blu-ray for the first time ever and we've provided some never-before-seen images of a of a deleted dinosaur sequence for that. Um, so we we um, we are kind of making sure that Ray's legacy is protected and uh, and and well advertised. You know, it's it's important that people know the the length to which he was influential in cinema. And now I'm kind of a I'm not a full-time trustee. None of the trustees are full-time. We have one full-time member of staff, Connor Heaney, who you will have seen at the Starburst Festival giving a wonderful yes, yeah. presentation on the lost treasures in the in the archive. But um, I, 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 I deal with Harryhausen Masses every day um, and it's become a major part of my working life alongside my own filmmaking now. So it's kind of like a parallel life. What I find incredible as well is like Ray's legacy... And we, you, you mentioned a few directors there, and people often say, "Oh, I'm going to the cinema. I'm going to watch the latest Spielberg movie, or, or you know, the latest John Landis movie." Whereas these these movies now are referred to as Ray Harryhausen movies, although they they weren't obviously at the time. But all of these that he worked as the effects on, they're just known as Ray Harryhausen movies, which is testament to the great work that he did. I think so, but also he has a unique place in film history in that, yes, he did the special effects, but he was never the guy who was brought on to do the effects. With his producing partner, Charles Schneer, they would decide what films they wanted to make. They would come up with the story. They would find a screenwriter, put the story together. Ray would come up with concept art. They would go to the studio and say, look, this is what we plan. This is the sort of thing we want to do. Uh, they would then find a director. So they would really be putting it all together. So there was no other special effects artist in, in cinema history that was also a producer, an instigator, and, and an all-round sort of, in some ways, an auteur with the way he was working. But you're right, at the time, they weren't considered Ray Harryhausen films in the way that the, they are now when they're re-released or shown on, on DVD and television. Um, but uh, it was a very different landscape in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There was very little public information on how the effects were achieved, um, studios were very cautious about releasing too many images even the posters used to have to go back to the studios to be destroyed so there was a very limited opportunity to sign seal and deliver your your work he was and he's so well loved by directors worldwide as well uh, again at the showing at uh, at starburst uh some of the quotes from from filmmakers across the world were were brilliant to read about. You know their love of Ray as well and how he influenced their work. No, definitely on the on the on the day Ray died in May 2013, George Lucas is quoted as having said, "Without Ray Harryhausen, there would likely have been no Star Wars," which you know is is quite a significant statement to make. Um, and Peter Jackson, James Cameron, Terry Gilliam, Tim Burton. These are all people who enjoyed Ray's films, would visit him when they'd come to London with uh, with premieres of their new works. So it really is testament to his work that not only it survives, but it also influenced those children who were children in the 70s and 60s and 50s, but who are now making the big decisions in Hollywood. Oh, gosh, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm still, like, incredulous even from... The very thought that the foundation has fifty thousand items—how uh, long is that? Is there any sort of plan of how long it will take to to go through everything that uh, the foundation has got? 
Well, it's, it's sort of a priorities at the moment. We're going through all of the creature collection to make sure that everything is as stable as possible. And our official conservator, Alan Friswell, is, is, is always making sure that um, any works that can be achieved to restore and enhance the creatures is done. Um, Ray approves of Alan Friswell because Alan was working on the creatures for quite a few years with Ray. Um, so he knows the kind of the right things to do. And it's a case of not overcolouring and making sure that there's plenty of photography to show the different stages of any works that we are carrying out. And of course, for every film that Ray made, there would have been two or three in that period that didn't get made. Um, he wanted to make The Adventures of Baron Munchausen long before Terry Gilliam had a stab at it. Um, mm -hmm. War of the Worlds he was going to make before George Powell did it in Technicolor with Martian sources on strings. Ray was going to do it with uh, the sources on tripods as they were originally in the book. So that would have been fascinating. And we have test footage of that and drawings and some models. Some of those we uh, we showed at the, uh, the Starburst Festival in Connor's um, talk, the Harryhausen Lost Treasures. So, you know, there's, there's lots to show and share with people. And then there's the day-to-day -day paperwork, stills, photography, contracts, scripts, um, variations on on, uh, on on writings, deleted scenes. Ray kept everything. You know, he's a hoarder by modern-day standards. So the fact that he kept everything is, is a godsend, really, because it's a real insight into the day-to-day -day working practices of... Uh, of someone who's who's significantly influential in the world of not just stop motion animation but in sort of the fantasy film genre and you know outside of the Walt Disney Studios this is the most complete film archive of its type and it really does capture a moment in time and so you know we're sharing that with exhibitions we're doing something with the Barbican next year we're doing a major exhibition with them a science fiction exhibition in 2017 that's coming um, we're doing different talks. Um, this week I'm speaking at Stoke-on-Trent at the University, Staffordshire University. I'm speaking at the Manchester Animation Festival at the end of November. I've, in the summer, gone to Germany and other places to do similar talks. And we're talking with the Oscars Museum as well about having not only some of the creatures and some of the artwork from the collection, but also some of the unique commentaries that we've recorded as part of their sort of active oral history program as well. So there's lots to keep us busy. And as part of Ray's letter of wishes that was part of his will, he wanted us to create a scholarship both in the UK and in the US for a stop-motion animation students. And, you know, if you'd said that 20 years ago, people would say, well, you know, stop-motion, <laughs> you know, why not, you know, why not get the spinning jenny out as well? It's, <laughs> it's the fact that stop-motion has returned... In, in a way that nobody perhaps could have expected, alongside photochemical. You know, film is making a, a slow um, return from, from death where it's been. Uh, Kodak, of course, which has been in terminal bankruptcy for the last uh, 10 or 11 years, has kind of hung in there. Um, I remember when Kodak was the apple of its day. You could, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you could go to Kodak. Kodak sponsored me through film school. They gave me free film stock. They told me the preferred laboratories to go to. Tell them you're a Kodak-sponsored student. They'll put your rushes through at reduced rates. You know, all of those deals. <laughs> I cut with Technicolor and uh, a laser with Deluxe. And when I made my first feature film, Monarch, um, 35mm feature, uh, Kodak gave me all the film stock on that picture for free in exchange for their name being on the end credits. So they, wow. they were in incredibly influential if Kodak said so, it happened. If people knew Kodak was sponsoring your film, you would get free use of this, that, and the other. It was quite something. In the way that if somebody knew Apple was behind you today, people would be like, wow, if Apple thinks this is something yeah. to back, then this is something to back. So they were in every high street. Everyone was using Kodak films. They were creating cameras. They really were, I guess, you know, the the Apple of their day. And it's a shame that... Uh, you know, it's it's been diminished now, but it's coming back. And stop motion is in the cinema with the marvelous films of Tim Burton, uh, Leica Studios, Kubo and the Two Strings, Paranormal, Frank and Weenie, Nightmare Before Christmas, all of the wonderful work of the Ardman Studios, 
wrong trousers, the wallet and grommets. Um, it's 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 back in a big way. So for animators who feel the freedom um, and the, the tactile nature of the physical world, rather than sat in front of a monitor and learning code, as it were. I mean, that's not to diminish people <laughs> who work in CG. I know there's a there's there is a, an anti CG lobby out there. I'm a big fan of CG films. There's lots of marvelous, wonderful stuff that's done. A lot of the people that are influenced by Ray are working in the CG um, area, and I think it's brilliant. You know, the the uh, the strides that have been made with computer graphics are absolutely stunning, and and certainly shouldn't be minimised. But I think now there is a place for stop motion animation to exist alongside the wonderful work of of CGI, and audiences want it. They're paying their their dollars and their pounds and their euros to see it so it's it's legitimized it again who would have who would have thunk it you know this many years 35 years after ray made his last film clash of the titans it is and i'm so happy that it's making a comeback like this too because i've always loved uh stop motion like yourself i grew up watching movies with it in and i think like a lot of people though i'm not sure if it was the first Harryhausen movie that I watched but it's the one that stuck in my mind is always Jason and the Argonauts um, but I have to say my favourite one <laughs> is and always has been The Valley of Guanji I just love love that movie so much how, how can you go wrong with cowboys and dinosaurs you know when you were when you were a young lad and you're watching cowboys and dinosaurs that's everything that you need in a movie right there oh it absolutely is you know it was um, it was a project that Willis O'Brien the creator of King Kong um, had imagined for himself. Um, Ray was a student of Willis O'Brien, had worked with the King Kong uh, maestro on The Mighty Joe Young. That was Ray's first film. But sadly, things never worked out for Willis O'Brien. He never really went on to make any more significant films after Black Scorpion. So um, it was great for Ray as a tribute to his old master to be able to make that film. It wasn't received well at the time because it didn't receive the, the best of distribution through, uh, through Warner Seven Arts, who were going undergoing a sort of a, uh, a corporate restructuring at the time and and often people didn't quite know how to market Ray's films so they would be shown as half-term fare and as an alternative to sort of uh, more syrupy maybe Disney films that were out at the time now they're not considered to be children's films uh, and in fact some of them are quite violent so to, to consider <laughs> them children's films you think about the beheading in um, Clash of the Titans how that managed yeah. to get away with the certificate it got um, it's it's great now the films are are being sort of um, reassessed you know if you looked at Clash of the Titans in the Radio Times or the TV Times when it went to VHS in the early 80s the reviews were quite sniffy and a bit dismissive now of course you pick up those same magazines the reviews have taken a, a complete U-turn and mm -hmm. they're, they're much more um, well they're much better received you know they are considered to be classics of their era and it's it's only fortunate that Ray lived long enough to see his work reassessed and his his status in the industry um, you know fully certified by the fact he was given a special academy award by um, by um, was it Tom Hanks about I think it was about 25 years ago now so it was um, wow. it was a, a kind of a, a uh, uh, I won't say it was a wrong that was put right because lots of people get nominated um, and don't win but um, shockingly Ray was never nominated <laughs> and, and that really is surprising given that he was working in a virtual special effects vacuum um, so it's it's a good thing that the Academy put that right and we, we have very close links with the Academy so we're very pleased for Ray he has the Oscar it's part of the Foundation's collection He's, he was very proud of his Oscar and when Tom Hanks gave it to him on on that night um tom hanks said it was jason and the argonauts that got him interested in filmmaking and acting so you know we can add maybe mr tom hanks there to um to raise sort of cull of marvelous filmmakers and film types who are influenced <laughs> not just you and me dave so tom hanks as well <laughs> tom hanks has joined uh, the likes of me and you <laughs> And of course, you're keeping his legacy going with the fantastic podcast that you and Connor do as well. Um, I first became aware of it uh, from your talk at Starburst. I immediately subscribed and then binged, listened <laughs> to every episode. Uh, 
and I'll put the links up on our website uh, to the podcast notes for this show of how they can subscribe to it. But if you'd like to tell the listeners a little bit about the podcast, because it is essential listening. No, thanks, Dave. That's that's marvellous to hear that. I mean, I, I just felt that we had a conversation to have with podcast listeners that maybe wasn't being had out there. There are some absolutely spectacularly good podcasts. Um, one of my favourites is one called Now Playing, where um, three lads and sometimes a girl pull together their favourite films and and we'll pull them apart and talk about them in the most um, uh, explicit terms in, in, in some instances. They'll look at the Bond franchise or the, uh, the films of Stephen King. And I just felt that, you know, there's an opportunity for us not to do that, but to share with people what we have in the Foundation Archive, to talk about perhaps the anniversaries that are coming up and to reveal some of the stories that up until now haven't fully been revealed. Uh, but I think our, our real jewel in our crown is the fact that we have these 25 plus hours of digital recordings I made with Ray. And in every episode, we release exclusive clips where people can hear Ray's own thoughts on all of his films, the good, the bad, you know, the indifference, the, the problems, because filmmaking is often trying to solve a succession of problems and we thought well look, we'll try it for a couple of episodes and see if there's any interest and then we'll sort of assess things and we were amazed by the response we've um exactly that you know we, we've been amazed how many people download we have thousands of subscribers now and we're up to episode 10 which is about to come out i think in the next week or so and mm. this is our inaugural year so we're only one year in and we've really I think captured lots of people who are fans of Ray Harryhausen, but I think more significantly because it's a free-to-download podcast, maybe more casual viewers who think, "Hey, that was a bit interesting. That's that's cut the journey time from here to my workplace or my college." So I'll I'll download that every month, and I think if we can keep that conversation going with just regular punters as well as fanboys, then we're doing our bit to keep Ray's legacy alive. Oh yeah, and you do. Like I said, you're doing a fantastic job, both yourself and Connor, with that podcast. Because I've been just fascinated by all of the stories that you've been telling, and of course, you know, you've got access to all of these sound files and with the work that the Foundation's doing, and you can keep everybody updated with all of that and uh, all of the talks that you're going to do. So yeah, once again, I can highly recommend it to everybody. It is very, very good indeed. I do. What I do have to ask as well. Um, because I'm very conscious of the time. I, I have to ask you, I'm afraid, John, Tina, co-host of the podcast and my other half, is obsessed with Medusa. And this obsession stems from watching Clash of the Titans uh, all those years ago. Um, and she wanted to ask, what what is um, the state of the model like now? Is it How is it kept up over these years? Uh, and is it, I'm presuming it's, quite well requested to go on shows and exhibits everywhere is that one of the most favoured one that people ask to see because the work in it involved the actual animation of that model as well is absolutely amazing it is yeah Medusa gets a lot of attention um, in fact I think we're going to be bringing Medusa and Calabos the Lord of the Marsh to the Manchester Animation Festival at the end of um, November so they're going to be making a, a special Ooh. personal appearance um, Medusa's in pretty good condition I mean because she comes from the last film that was only 35 years ago, um, all of the characters and creatures from Clash of the Titans are in, if you like, better condition than any of those that um, that came before. Um, the difficulty with all of the creatures is that the rubber that coats the, uh, the steel and ball and socket joint skeletons or armatures uh, is very dry, so she can't be moved. The poses all of the creatures are in are the final poses that Ray left them in so we don't alter those um, yeah. so she's kind of regularly watched I mean she's all of the creatures along with Medusa are in a temperature controlled environment there's no daylight um, the temperature is kept at a constant so when they do come out as it were to, to visit the public then um, it's, a, it's a rare opportunity that they're in uh, anything close to um a natural environment and and that's when it makes us nervous so the insurers insist that at least two of us have to be with them at all times we literally wear cotton gloves so that the oils yeah. from our hands don't deteriorate the creatures but um, we have an ongoing 
uh, watching process of making sure the creatures are in as best condition as, as can be. But she's in pretty good nick, you know, of uh, she seems to have a, a kind of a, I won't say a magical power, but she certainly is um, looking good for her years. I can say that. <laughs> and as part of the talk that I give, I, I tell people who um, Ray um, was inspired to create the Medusa from because there was a certain Hollywood legend that Ray modelled the face for Medusa on. And when I show it as part of my um, my presentation, Ray Harryhausen and me, the audience is always taken by surprise. I'm always relieved because I think, gosh, does everyone know this yet? Um, <laughs> Hollywood siren Joan Crawford was the face that um, Ray modelled the Medusa on. And when you see them side by side, because Joan Crawford is quite an imposing and very beautiful actress, but very imposing... Yeah and uh, starey-eyed person even when she's trying to be romantic in films she comes across a bit kind of mummy dearest <laughs> um, so yes she was the inspiration Ray never told many people that he felt that that was um, in some ways impolite to the memory of Joan Crawford but there you go it's out <laughs> that is brilliant well it's like I say it's stories like these and much more that the listeners will get uh, if you just subscribe to your podcast because I know I could quite happily sit here all evening chatting with you John <laughs> and I'm, I am very grateful at the, the time that you've given to me I don't want to take up too much more um, so I would once again push everybody towards the podcast for more great stories like that you're going to find out a hell of a lot more about Ray Harryhausen and, and the movies that he worked on uh, before you go though John what is the what are the next things that's planned for the foundation like you said you've got the upcoming uh, Manchester animation show and uh, uh, well uh, uh, two days from when we're recording one million years BC like you said is out on blu-ray for the first time is there anything else that you can talk about at the moment that's planned uh, well next year it's going to be the 60th anniversary of 20 million miles to earth and there is a high definition colorized version of that film which is available to be shown which Ray supervised colorization on um, so we're having some screenings of that. It's the 40th anniversary of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, and that's been scanned in 4K by the wonderful team down at Sony, who now look after the Columbia archive. So we're having access to that, and we're going to be having some special screenings up and down the country, and hopefully internationally as well. Um, there are some possible new publications coming on the horizon. There's some video and audio footage that we're going to be releasing next year there's going to be more podcasts of course and uh you know we are looking to do things for ray's centenary because we've created something called ray harryhausen or rather harryhausen 100 so it'll be ray's centenary in 2020 so every 29th of june which is ray's birthday we try and do something special this year we had a competition to create a logo for harryhausen 100 which is now online you can see us at uh, the website um, and next year we're going to have some similar talks and events there's going to be a blue plaque hopefully at Ray's house in uh, in Holland Park um, there's going to be as I say other screenings and so on and we are talking to uh, Sony Pictures about some projects as well some very exciting stuff coming up in the next few years so there's lots lots to talk about excellent excellent and what's the best way that people can find and follow you online John and keep up to date with everything that's happening well the Ray Harryhausen Dot com is where they find the websites um, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links there as well it's all one word rayharryhausen.com and you can find information about the trustees and links to the trustees and so on and on there you'll also find the links to the podcast and it's imaginatively titled the Ray Harryhausen podcast um, and that's on <laughs> iTunes SoundCloud and a few other places as well if you go online you'll be able to find those and, and download them and if anyone's interested my film and tv work and if you want to see an exclusive clip of ray harryhausen movement into life then on my film and tv website walsh bros that's w a l s h b r o s dot co dot uk you can you can knock yourself out and have a look at lots of clips and hear some of the stuff that dave's been playing uh, in tonight's episode excellent and i will of course uh, put all of those links on our website and the podcast notes for this episode so everybody can just click and find and follow john and ray harryhausen foundation and, and keep up to date with everything but john for the purposes of the edit um unfortunately i will say goodbye like i said i could just keep talking for hours <laughs> with you uh, but 
but you have got an evening <laughs> to carry on with as well. So thank you so much, John. Uh, I knew it would be a great, a great chat with you, and uh, I sure as hell wasn't disappointed. So thank you so much. Not at all. Thanks. I always like the opportunity to talk about Rainey's work, and I feel I'm very much a one of the guardians of um, of his flame, as it were. If that doesn't sound too pretentious, and I'm always available if people want to talk to me, chat to me, or have me talk at their events, then um, get in touch. Brilliant. Thank you, John. The Alarm Bell, as always, brings to an end another interview show, and one in which I'm sure you enjoyed listening to just as much as I did recording with John. Uh, you can, of course, find and follow everything that John does online. The easiest way to do that is to go to our website, where all of the links will be on the podcast notes for this episode. Our website is 60minuteswith.co.uk. You can also like us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash 60 minutes with and we're on twitter and instagram both of those are at 60 minutes with and as always all of those are with the numerical 60 and not the alphabetical one uh, all of the sound files that you listen to in uh, in this episode are taken from john's website and used of course with the kind permission of john himself so thank you again for that john uh, so what better way to finish the show than let, let's listen to another little clip from john's fantastic documentary ray harryhausen movement into life his professional start was as Willis O'Brien's assistant, but even up to his last film, he has constantly developed his own techniques. Well, model animation is basically the same principle as the animated cartoon, only instead of using flat drawings, you have a model such as this. In each frame of film, you have to change the position of the model. You have to move it very slightly. You have to move the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the arms, uh, many different parts of the body. It is, of course, much easier to animate a, a creature of uh, the imagination, uh, such as the mythological kraken. 